Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he taught into, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority, and not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him, and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Some of this introduction might be uh, generated and inspired by my experience this week. But if you met an 80-year-old mechanic and he picked up an alternator and asked you, what is this, you might grow concerned about his mental health. If a 40-year-old seamstress picked up a sewing needle and asked you, what is this, you might doubt her ability as a seamstress or her integrity in claiming to be a seamstress. If a 20-year-old student picked up a book and asked, what is this, we might question how we live now in a world where students no longer use books but read things all on tablets or screens. But if a two-year-old picked up a rock and asked, what is this, we would patiently explain the nature of a rock. We might even be enthralled at the wonder of a child to whom the whole world is new and unexperienced. When we hear Mark talk about astonishment, we often, though, don't hear it in that last example. We don't hear it as someone to whom these things are new and unexperienced and marvelous. We grow jaded in our reading, wondering how those described could be so dense and slow not to know what is going on. And we live in a post-gospel world where the idea of Christ has become commonplace, exemplified by this month. For those who know what Christmas ought to celebrate, that is, the birth of Christ, how many truly understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. The supernatural fails to impress those who are familiar with God become man. It fails to cause wonders to those who watch spectacles on their screens. And I suggest that we need to recapture the marvel of the gospel, for that is the marvel that Mark wishes us to see. We need to catch the wonder that Mark seeks to spark 
in the gospel. Mark leaves so much unexplained, so many questions unanswered, to bring the wonder to bear upon his audience. And one of the key questions he poses to his audience throughout the book, he develops from this historical statement of the Jews in the synagogue at Capernaum. This passage dwells on the theme of authority. This authority appears and causes the questions at the end of the passage. And to trace it, we must consider Jesus' possession of authority both to call, to teach, and to command. Authority to call, to teach, and to command. We begin with the authority to call as Jesus continues his earthly ministry with a practice that is common to the rabbis of his time. He begins developing a following. This process does not feature uh, different, doesn't, has features that are different than those of the time in which he is developing this following based upon the theme of authority. He calls four men to his entourage and two sets of brothers. The first two he calls to be fishers of men, and the second two come from the sons of Zebedee. The story begins with a bucolic setting, as we see in verse 16. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Jesus walks along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, This inland sea on the north end of the Jordan River uh, boasts ample, if variable, fishing and tumultuous weather, as will be apparent throughout the gospel. On that day, Jesus spies a boat with two men working their trade in fishing. We know from the other gospels that he has met them before, but that Mark does not talk about. For Mark, that information is unnecessary for his purpose. And to them, Jesus speaks those famous words we read in verse 17. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. I think it's important to begin with clarifying what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not judge men fishing to be more important than ordinary fishing. Nor does this gospel indicate that men fishing uh, is the ordinary work or duty of all Christians. Rather, Jesus is calling these two men for a specific purpose. He is apostolically choosing them to a certain task. This call uses a unique vocabulary and construction. Jesus literally tells them, come behind me. Come Get in the back. The controlling verb signals them to draw near to Jesus. And as a consequence of that approach, these two are to follow him. Draw near to me. Come to me, Jesus says to Simon and Andrew. And as a result, you will be those who follow me. Notice also that Jesus' call does not fit the contemporary rabbinical call as some commentators note. That when the rabbis would call people to join them, their call would be not follow me, but follow the Torah, follow the instruction, follow the Old Testament. Jesus calls them to follow him. He presents himself with authority to call people to himself as the Messiah, the one sent from God, the one that all people are to follow. 
He calls them and tells them that he will make them to be called. He will develop in them the ability to be the fishers of men. In doing so, Jesus connects their past vocation with their future vocation. They are still going to be fishers. They're just going to fish in a different way. The results uh, emphasize the theme of authority in verse 18, and straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Some commentators see the use of the term immediately youthless, that very common adverb that's going to appear throughout Mark as merely indicative of, of the way in which uh, Mark usually uses it, this quick uh, Markan formula. But it might also indicate that immediate obedience. Immediately, without hesitation, Simon and Andrew start following Jesus. And whether that is the, the import of that particular adverb, that is certainly the import of that ver- this verse. Quick obedience to the command of Jesus. We see that in the parallel to the next call. In contrast to the calling of the first set of brothers, the second set of brothers receive a call not explicitly recorded for us. We don't know what Jesus said. But look at verse 19. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James and his brother Zebedee. uh, Excuse me. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. Notably, these brothers appear in the context of their father and their shipping enterprise. Zebedee uh, is, is mentioned twice in as many verses. His appearance here and in the other Gospels suggests that some amount of name recognition among the apostles. As mentioned, the call of James and John appears without specific wording. As you see in verse 20, and straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Again, we see the immediacy of their obedience. While the term straightway, the adverb, uh, euthus, there applies to the calling of Jesus, we see their immediate obedience as they leave the entire business group in the middle of their activity. There they are, mending or folding or washing their nets. The verb there is a little unclear. They're taking care of their nets. And while they're in the middle of this with their father and the hired servants and they're all working together, Jesus comes by and says, you two follow me, and they're gone. Fathers, sons, employees, all working away, and they watch two of their number walk away from a lucrative business at the call of one man. This meets the theme that Mark wants his readers to consider, that this Jesus, declared to be the Son of God, promised in the prophets, proclaimed by John, associated in baptism, acknowledged by heaven, triumphant over the wilderness, comes to Galilee, preaching and powerfully calling men to his fellowship. He wants the reader to ask, who is this guy who can go up to these other fishermen, which is a lucrative trade, would be upper middle class in today's world, and is able to say, you guys follow me, and they leave everything they know and go and follow Christ. Who is this man that can call comfortable businessmen and order them to leave their unemployment for an uncertain future? Yet, Christian, everyone that hears the call 
from Jesus, hears that same call to come and follow him. Your call may not be to be fishers of men the way the apostles were, but you still receive the call of Jesus to come and to follow him. And I urge you not to let your estimation of what is the most good override the calling of the Holy God. Whatever it is that God has called you to matters. It is important whether the world thinks it matters or not. It matters despite your own estimation of your calling. And I say this because some of the worst theology and behavior has come from the hubris that dictates to God which vocations, which callings, which work matter. Some have warped theology because they believe pastoral ministry matters more than raising children, a monstrous idea. Some break the commandment Uh, the commandments to obtain a calling that they might not achieve without sin. But Christian, Jesus has called you. He has called you to a specific work. He has called you to a ministry that he deigns to be important. Do what he has called you to do. For he is the only one with the authority to call. But he is also the one with authority to teach The next mark of authority comes in the synagogue of Capernaum. Here, the mention of authority governs our interpretation. We should consider both where Jesus taught and how he taught. Mark gives his readers a geographical marker in the region of the calling of the disciples. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. Capernaum uh, likely was the hometown of the four disciples he just made. It's close to Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth. It functioned as sort of the political power center for the north shore of Galilee. It contained uh, enough wealth for the uh, the city to construct a rather substantial building for the synagogue. There are archaeologists who note that there is a white basalt synagogue foundation under which a black basalt synagogue foundation is found. So who knows how many layers of synagogues there were. Yet the word synagogue refers primarily to the group rather than the building. Jesus entered into the fellowship and was invited to teach presumably by the rulers of the synagogue. Synagogue synagogue practice and uh, worship is notoriously difficult to pin down. But we believe that it often included a worship leader or leaders, uh, depending upon the size of the community. For a tradition tells us that any 13 13 uh, Jewish men over the age of 13 uh, were able to establish their own synagogue. The leaders of the synagogue would direct the service, but often would ask male worshipers to share their knowledge with the assembly, as we see done both in the life of Jesus and in the life of Paul. So on this Sabbath day, this visiting proclaimer of the gospel was asked to say something. This one who had come into Galilee saying, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, was asked to stand up and say something. And little did the rulers know what they would hear on that day. 
And Mark explains what caused the assembly to marvel at Jesus. Look at verse 22. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught as them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. I'll often call out the authorized version when it has a fault, but I'll give it credence later. Uh, the choice of doctrine here isn't good because it makes it's the same word that is uh, part of the verb earlier, to teach. They are, are astonished at his teaching, the way he taught, but also uh, the content of what he taught. The lion's share of the cause uh, uh, that Mark attributes it of their astonishment is to Jesus' manner. Jesus teaches as one with authority. He teaches differently than the scribes do. The scribes were experts in the law. They were masters in the law. They were scholars of the law. Notably the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Part of their job uh, was not only studying the law and becoming saturated with the law, but teaching it to others teaching what the law required and how it was to be applied. They were, the, those, they were they who people would go to when they wanted to know, what does the law uh, say about this situation? And so their rabbis would call disciples to the Torah, to the law, and not themselves. They would, if you went to talk to them, they would say, well, the Torah says this. But Jesus teaches as the lawgiver not the law student. When he applies the law, he does so authoritatively with certainty and with divine prerogative. And that way those listening had never heard his application, his interpretation, or the manner of authority he possessed in his proclamation. In fact, no one had heard a voice like his since the Ten Commandments thundered down from Sinai. And the same voice that spoke on Sinai now speaks in a synagogue in Capernaum. Of course, Mark's audience probably didn't have a background in Sinai, being, as we assume, Roman Gentiles, but they certainly understood someone who came and spoke with authority. Who is this one who can come and speak with such authority? Who is this one, as these Roman Gentiles might have assumed, that this Jewish congregation who are so consumed with the book, this one can come in and speak with authority, and they marvel and wonder and listen to him? What will cause these people to listen with such reverence? Well, pastors are scribes. We teach the book and nothing but the book. We have no individual authority outside the authoritative word of Scripture because this is God's word. This is the word of Christ. Every bit of it, not just the bits you read in the red letters. Every page, every word is the word of Jesus. And this is what John 1 tells you. The word became flesh, but the word was in the beginning. And yet, while the pastor may be a scribe, the word preached has authority because of its source. As the pastor speaks the word of God to you, the word of God binds you. 
Christian, you don't have the luxury of ignoring the message of Scripture. Would you dare to disregard the man the Lord Jesus has sent to you to deliver the word to you? Just as Jesus sent the disciples and set them for the work that he chose, so we believe that God still sends men into the church to pastor and to teach. We still believe it because the word tells us that in Ephesians chapter 4. And we believe that God does so not making any mistakes in where he puts his men. Well, God doesn't make mistakes. I certainly have. I have sinned against members of this church and, well, likely do so again. And I have no excuse to offer, only forgiveness to bed. And yet, I say that because the sovereignty of God tells us that even this God uses to teach, to train, and to equip his people. The marvel of pastoring and preaching and the church is that God uses all of us as sinful beings to build up and equip one another. Because he has the authority to call and the authority to teach. And he also has the authority to command. Perhaps the quality of the first recorded miracle done by Jesus and Mark echoes uh, with astonishment. It relates to what we often call an exorcism, but it occurs without the traditional ritual that often uh, featured in exorcisms in this time period. Instead of the ritual, Jesus merely commands. We see this in the, the description of the demon and the fame. I find the setting uh, somewhat surprising. Look at verse 23. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Now, hang on. Now, I wrote this. Hang on a minute. I need to check something. Okay, I'm back. No one in the commentaries that I read sees something strange in the presence of a demon-possessed man in the assembly of the synagogue. No commentator actually mentions the fact, this sounds weird. Why is there a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue? If someone with an unclean spirit just showed up here, I mean, we get worried oftentimes when anyone new shows up, much less someone who we think of as having a demon. But none of the commentaries mention it. Or at least none of the ones that I went through. I went through all of my Mark commentaries, and I went through all of my Luke commentaries, because the same thing shows up in Luke. None of them. The only thing I found even close uh, was one commentary that uh, had one sentence where it said that Luke does not stop to puzzle over this question. In the footnote, he notes that synagogue practices aren't very clear, implying that they might not have bothered with such a person being present. And I find this approach, the Sangon approach, rather troubling. And I submit the possibility for your consideration that it was only in the aftermath of this event that they understood what this man's problem was. That before this event happened, they may have had no idea that this guy was possessed by a demon. It was only afterward that they realized, oh, that was that guy's problem. Could it be that 
he is given an opportunity to speak and says what he says because he has some respect even in the synagogue. The statement the demon makes about Jesus actually generates more controversy among the scholars. Look at verse 24. Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Many see this confession of the supernatural powers uh, to the divinity of Christ. Many suggest that this is, uh, they, they really grind on this for a long time and every bit of it. Leave us alone. Uh, there's, you know, the demons don't want Jesus there. What, do we, what have we to do with you? This, this is the exact same phrase that uh, Jesus uses with his mother in John chapter 1. What is that to you and me? What have, what, have we, what have we to do with you? I know who you are. You are Jesus of Nazareth. You, you're coming to destroy us. I know you are the Holy One of God. If we see it from the mouth of the demons, it causes all, all of this question. But I wonder if we ought not to take this as not a demonic declaration of Jesus' being but as an attempt to discourage belief. A sarcastic comment by a man in the synagogue. Perhaps the assembly only knew of his possession after the fact that a demon was cast out. He asserts Jesus' human background as of Nazareth. What, listen to it as if uh, this person is just some other guy in the synagogue. Leave us alone. Why are you bothering us with your doctrine? What, what do we have to do with you, with your new message of the kingdom of God? You're Jesus of Nazareth, emphasizing his human background. Have you come to destroy the synagogue with your teaching? I know who you say you are. You're the Holy One of God. While scholars debate the nature of demonic understanding and confession, perhaps we ought to consider the deceptive nature of Satan and how his minions use speech not to draw confession, but to draw deception and confusion. And perhaps that is the reason why Jesus makes the first order to the evil spirit of verse 25, and Jesus rebuked him and saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. He stops the mouth of deceit. He tells the demon to be quiet. Some have tried to say that this is an evidence of uh, the Markan approach of messianic secret, that, that Christ is trying to keep it a secret that he's the Messiah. I don't think so. I think this is a demonstration of divine power. However you understand uh, the demon-possessed man, however you understand his statement, the point of this story is all about Jesus' authority over the demons. He's able to tell them to be silent, and command that with authority, and he is able to tell them to leave. He is able to stop the mouth of lies and deceit, and he is able to set free the soul tormented by the demon. He is the great liberator of his people. But the pernicious nature of the demon will not allow it to, to leave freely. Look at verse 26. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. 
this probably, under my reconstruction, informed everyone, oh, that's what's going on here. Once the demon left, everyone in the synagogue knew what was wrong with this person. He goes into a fit. The demon tears him. The demon cries out. Evil will not leave a man peacefully. It will not go quietly, but it will go. The demon possessed could not rid himself of the demon. Jesus had to do it for him. But it would take nothing more than his word of command and power. It is that word of power that shocks the watching crowd. Look at verse 27. And they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commandeth even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. We might interpret the question as, What is going on here? The word amazement here is a different word from what, the way it was in verse 27. There seems to be, uh, some have said this is a mere synonym, but there seems to probably is a bit of an ex- uh, uh, emphasis here that there isn't before. They are amazed at his doctrine. That's one thing, to hear something you never heard before, to hear authority like that. To see authority that that word, the same word that was being used to instruct you, is now being used to cast out demons. That's a higher level of amazement. What is going on here? What kind of teacher is this? He orders demons around. We might think about this event as if it were commonplace. If we experienced this power, we probably would be terrified. This isn't your movie exorcism with all its ritual and incantation. This, if it was made a movie, would be rather short. Jesus appears and he says, demon, be quiet and leave. And it's done. The evil, evil forces that we cannot even imagine that are going on in the spiritual realm, let alone conquer, Jesus is able to evict with a simple word of command. And this causes the people who see it to be amazed and astounded. Who is this? What is this? What is going on? No wonder his reputation spread like wildfire, as we see in verse 28. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Jesus came into Galilee. He was on the north shore. There he met his four disciples. He does this uh, exorcism in the synagogue of Capernaum. Suddenly, all the region around uh, the sea is flowing with the news of this one. The whole region heard of a new exorcist, one without ritual, without incantation, one who simply commanded and the demons fled, one who was able to call and teach and command with authority. Well, my friend, the devil will not leave you easily. In fact, you can do nothing to evict him from your life. Every person is born in evil, in sin, by nature and by choice. That evil we cannot remove any more than the possessed man could evict his own demon. We need a Savior. We need that word of command. And God sent a Savior for his people. Jesus isn't merely another human prophet. He is God made man. 
who lived a life free from all evil, who died upon the cross as the sacrifice to pay the penalty that sin deserved, the penalty of death and the wrath of God. He rose again to show that evil would not have the last word and that Jesus gives new life to all who believe in him. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? I call you to turn from the evil in your heart and to follow Jesus. Christian, we find it too easy to see the effects of the devil in the world and not in the church. If we see it in the church, we only see it in expressions of Christianity with which we disagree. We dare not think that evil might lurk in the heart of our comfortable, reformed, Presbyterian bubble. Unfortunately for most of us, our experience has taught us better. We have seen leaders fall. We have seen members sin. And as troubling as all that sounds, we ought to consider the worst truth. We avoid the frightening prospect that the evil that matters most is the one that lurks in our own heart. We dare not consider, consider that the trouble with the church is us, is me. As much as God's people reflect his gifts upon the church, our sin troubles it. That is the paradox of all God's people, that we are all both at the same time blessing the church, edifying the church, building it up, and also its chief problem. And the magic of the church, the, the miracle of the church, is that Christ and God uses sinners like us to build his church. He is able to use earthen vessels, jars of clay, to show forth his glory. And we praise the Lord that he is able to sovereignly cast out the evil within. He is sovereignly able by his Spirit to make those of us who are sinners to be followers. He is able by his Spirit to conform our character to the character of Christ. But it often occurs with trauma. The evil is exposed. It tears us. It makes a noisy exit. That trauma convicts us and encourages us to, be, to keep short accounts with our God. What evil still lurks in your heart? What sin do you still cherish? What ought you to change but stubbornly refuse the gentle call of Jesus to repentance? Don't wait for the traumatic word of command. I've experienced both. I've experienced the tearing of sin out of my heart by command, and I have experienced the ability to conform gradually to the image of Christ, and I can tell you one is preferable to the other. Let not your heart be hardened. Believe and repent. Let's pray together. Father, forgive our sin. Give us ears to hear your voice with humble submission and obedience. Bind our hearts to follow you all the days of our lives. Hear our cry, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.